I'm very pleased now that I'm going to hand over to Karis Medina. Karis, come. Karis is associate curator at the Albers Foundation. Um, Karis has been so instrumental and important to this whole project, not only installing with Sam the, the, the show, but enabling us to look and learn with her and really benefit for, from her extraordinary uh, knowledge about these things. So Thank I'm very happy me. to hand over to you. Thank you. Well, another thank you to you, Bryony and Marta for organizing so much of this wonderful weekend. Perfect, thanks. Um, I also have to thank Anne Coxon and Maria Muller-Schaff for um, organizing this tremendous exhibition of Annie Albers, which has helped me, helped provide me a jumping point for the particular course of research I'm sharing with you today. I'm also forever indebted to Ismini <laughs> for starting me down on this path of exploration. In the summer of 2014, Ismini and I, along with a few others from the Albers Foundation, closely examined two of Annie's pictorial weavings from 1954. That encounter set in motion this research, which is also experiment, and is very much in process and ongoing. As you've heard from other speakers this weekend, Annie Albers wrote often, and she wrote eloquently. She wrote about the ideological stance of the Bauhaus weaving workshop and of the problems of the modern industrial production. She wrote about the history and genesis of weaving throughout the ancient world, about the evolution of the loom, about weaving's relationship to architecture, and she even wrote about jewelry. But although she wrote so much and about so many different aspects of weaving, the fact remains that she wrote very little about her pictorial weavings, and she wrote even less about the process of making them. The pictorial weavings, a, form, a term she coined for her weavings that were, in her words, headed towards art, a particular body of work which was made from 1933 to 1968, and which, depending on how you define them, ranges between either 30 works or 60 works. One of the only texts she wrote which directly addresses the pictorial weavings was published in the catalog of the 1959 exhibition, Annie Albers' Pictorial Weavings at MIT. It is, short, it is short and poetic, and I think it can provide a rubric for how she might want us to approach her work. She writes, Though some of the earliest weavings, unearthed after thousands of years, have the magic of things yet found not yet found useful, and later periods have shown us weavings as art, thousands of years of establishing and expanding the usefulness of woven materials have made us see them first as something to be worn, walked on, sat upon, be cut up, even sewn together again, in short, largely something no longer itself useful, use, no longer itself fulfilled, sorry to let threads articulate again and find a form for themselves to no other end than their own orchestration, not to be sat on, walked on, only to be looked at. That is the raison d'etre of my pictorial weavings. While she often spoke about her weavings theoretically and even pragmatically, 
in her book on weaving, Albers is not particularly interested in laying bare the specifics of her own technique or processes. When we look at Albers' work in the Bauhaus, there are often diagrammatic sketches or weaving plans for the early wall hangings and utilitarian fabrics. A few that are included in the exhibition at Tate show multiple variations of similar compositions, each iteration and permutation of another possibility of composition, but somewhere along the lines, those drawings disappear from her practice. Whether or not Albers continued to create these diagrams or drawings for her pictorial weavings beyond the Bauhaus is unknown. And so without diagrams or weavings weaving plans, we're left to look at her weavings much the same way she looked at the great Andean weavings she so admired from her youth and eventually collected. Enthralled by these weavings, we can imagine Albers at her studio table with an Andean weaving in front of her, one hand on a needle or tweezer, she is gently lifting warp away from weft, slowly loosening the fibers, breaking the weft thread to begin the nearly impossible task of unweaving this masterful textile and she'll, until she can start to understand the intricacies of its structure, its double weave, its warp face pattern otherwise obscuring secrets to its construction. It's this vision of Annie Elbers that I hold close to mind when studying her weavings, looking closer and closer still, even sometimes with tweezer in hand, although of course I'm not in I'm not in the business of unpicking Albers' weavings, certainly not literally. <laughs> it's in this spirit that I begin by looking closely at the primary material of a weaving, the warp. <coughs> um, quick technical primer, although not likely necessary for many people in this room. Um, dressing a loom, as we talked about a little bit yesterday, requires, uh, it's a really time-consuming process with very few possible shortcuts. The individual warp threads must be measured e to equal length and individually threaded onto the loom. Depending on the scale, this process can take hours, days, or for me, maybe even months. Um, this is all before one sits down to place the first weft thread. Because of this, weavers are often economical about their warps, using time efficiently. Um, a weaver may measure out a very long warp, long enough for one or more projects. For the sake of this talk, I'll stick primarily to the weavings between 1948 and 65, a period of Albers' most productive years, which is sometimes staggeringly productive. So in 1948 and 49, Albers is in transition. She and Joseph are in the process of leaving Black Mountain College, a place where they've lived and taught for the last 15 years. Albers is also preparing for her first major solo exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art, an exhibition which includes mostly utilitarian fabrics, room dividers, typewriter studies, as we can see here on the left. And, but it is also one of the earliest documented instances of Albers' framed textiles. I've always regarded these two particular works as transitional, sort of middle ground between the earlier tapestries Albers is experimenting with in 1941 and 47, but these two begin something new, because we see these are both on the same warp. When turned aligned, in this case, the untitled weaving from 48 is turned 90 degrees <coughs> counterclockwise, 
or clockwise and city on the right is turned 90 degrees counter, uh, yeah, counterclockwise. We see the warp stripes, which um, bear with me for the sake of the wide screen. Um, I've laid the readings out sideways so we can see the warps. Usually we look at them sort of vertically, but in this instance, to fit many readings in, um, we're going to be looking at them horizontally. So the warps in this instance are running horizontally. Let us imagine we are ourselves standing next to Annie's loom as she unwinds and stretches the textiles out before us. So maybe looking that way. The particularly convincing aspect of these two readings is that once we begin to really notice the alternating black and white warp stripe, it begins to reveal itself in unexpected places. For instance, uh, we see the same alternating black and white warp stripe in a fabric sample Albers called the display fabric from 1949. Interestingly, we see Albers working in both pictorial weaving and design, utilitarian fabric in the same breath, so to speak. Breaking sort of this division between what is art and what is design. Understanding she's, she's working with the same concepts to think about how different permutations can come out of a specific grid or specific um, warp. In black, white, gold, one and two from 1950, we see Albers establish a specific form for the pictorial weaving. These first sets of variations also follow the same rotational pattern. In the early works, we see the supple supplemental weft begin to dominate the composition, the calligraphic line, the interrupting knots, intermixed lyric threads. These elements of black, white, gold become in some ways some of the hallmark language of Albers' pictorial weavings. With their titles and forms, Albers blatantly tells us these weavings are related, but it wasn't really until identifying that previous display fabric from 49 that the full connection or family of warps can become clear. So you see the same black and white uh, warp stripe running through all five of these particular textiles. Similarly, um, but also differently, <laughs> often these relationships, though explicitly denoted by their titles, sorry, uh, still have required a little bit of imagination to determine that they are in fact related. Development in rows uh, one on the left, having been in a private collection, lived for many years in a sun-drenched room, whereas development in rows two on the right very quickly entered a collection, museum collection, where its exposure to light was limited. When we look at the verso, which this is a very rare instance, we have a verso image. This is from a, um, the conservation for the 1999 Annie Albers retrospective, in which many of the textiles were removed from their mounting and remounted on, and into the frames that you see them in today. So development in rows one, which is the much subtler pink, uh, this is the recto on the left, and the verso of that, that same textile on the right. Uh, the relationship between um, development in rows one and development in rows two becomes much more apparent. Warp stripes in pink, 
coral, orange, and natural jute or linen align perfectly with one another. The subtlety in, in development in rose one is not a fact of the weaving structure itself or the materials, but a result of sun exposure causing the pigment, pigmented linen fibers to lose their hue. So the front's there. The final orientation of these compositions was perhaps not finalized until they actually came off the loom. There, now relaxed, Albers once again sort of collaborates with the work, rotating and stitching their monograph to the orientation that pleased her. Because these warps are sort of switched, the weavings are abutted, they're not made sequentially. If we were to place them one beside one another, as in the previous slide here, the warp stripes are actually alternated. So once they come off the loom, I think the orientation is then decided permanently. Perhaps Albers intentionally rotates her composition to orchestrate the wefts under inverse rules. While still saving time, she affords herself even more variation, a next level, much in the same way that she later turns the screens while printing for her meander screen prints, overlapping register in order to create a more complex image with the most economic means. These two weavings, made of cotton and linen warps, alternating one thick fiber, one thin, are both made an underlying 15-unit checkerboard grid, which, upon which brocaded fibers and supplemental wefts create meandering maze-like compositions. These weavings were fairly easily matched with one another in part because, unlike the rest of the pictorial weavings, these were rotated from their loom orientation. So when Albers is weaving, she's weaving away from herself and usually then displays a work vertically. But these, which are woven here, correctly, left to right, stay in that orientation. Um, let me go here. So we notice the alignment of the grid, and then even closer, there's this disruption or perhaps threading error in the warp pattern of the thick fin that we can see in both of these. You sort of see two very thin fibers right next to each other. So we see sort of the DNA of the of the weavings is together. But, uh, red meander and red and blue layers. Moving on to here, we come to 1952. This is where things begin to change yet again and where Albers begins to surprise us even more. It is where Albers really begins to use the structural warp for the processes of improvisation and manipulation and begins to challenge the grid beyond what she's done before. These weavings are with a warp of alternating orange, white, and brown warp fibers organized in subtle um, vertical columns, 28 units across. Here, she creates two wildly different weavings, but using the same prescribed grid. Red meander, a dense maze in red, she calls it, and white, and uh, red and white double weave, and another weaving, red and blue layers, a wildly colorful expression of exploration of gauze weaves, which take full advantage of the double cloth and consistently altering the plane, making fibers appear and then disappear. It's this pair that ignited my inquiry. If these two fairly disparate works could be made on the same warp, 
the same structural or orchestration, if you will, there must be more pairs or families of warps. The, the concept that Annie could explore so many different permutations of, of a, one particular set of fibers and create things so incredibly different, differently, <coughs> a revelation. So we continue down the path here um, to 1958. Four years later, from the previous two weavings, we find ourselves with another set of weavings that also share a warp consisting of the subtle 28 vertical warp sections of orange, white, and this time black warps. Both of these pictorial weavings, whose titles reference landscape, seem initially to share a total disregard for the rigid grid, particularly um, in south of the border, where colors seem to rise and fall organically, paying no mind to the linear structure of weaving. With regards to the warp structure, these two weavings of these two weavings is extraordinarily similar to the previous one we looked at, with perhaps closer study and more time, we might find that they are something like cousins in a sort of brilliantly colored family. Black, white, and um, the black and white warps now. So expanding from here, we have the black and white warps. These weavings made of a four fiber warp, alternating one black linen fiber, one black cotton fiber, one white blue clay, wool blue clay, and one white cotton fiber. These works, woven in double weave, are all explorations of lino, some small, some larger, some with subtle interventions of color and supplemental weft, and others even with plastic. Here we see a detail. We can see the, sort of see the, the four different types of fiber in the fringe here. So similar to the, to the case of development in rose, one of these textiles doesn't initially fit within the warp color. By all accounts, variations on the theme appears brown. But following Annie, Annie's method of looking closely, tweezers in hand here, we see below the first layer of warps and discover that the second layer below has not faded and is completely um, in keeping with the, the rest of the warps we're looking at, this black and white, alternating, thin, smooth, um, textured warp. And so for the sake of visualizing, we experiment by restoring the original color to this weaving. It's also quite interesting to note here that these weavings whose structure and warp materials are shared amongst themselves but they also share another commonality, that their titles are also evocative of written communication. Here, memo, open letter, jotting, and perhaps then variations on a theme create sort of a narrative of the idea of writing, the physicality of it. Um, the linos, in a way, almost relating to kipus and storytelling and the nature of, of knots. In 1957, we have yet another set of weavings that follow a similar path, another set of double weave, double weave cloth weave, 
double cloth weavings that are made with complementary blue, white, yellow, and brown warp threads. These have a 15 vertical units across. Again, with supplemental lefts, double weave, and experiments with lurex, um, with lurex fibers, and traditional tapestry techniques, similar in a way to La Luce from 1947. And here in Tikal, a weaving that's almost all warp, seemingly barely held together by small areas of discontinuous weft and very sparse gauze. And they're aligned. We see the units going across. The last group of these weavings is from the early 1960s, is again a return to sort of the original warp stripe here, alternating orange black orange-white warps sections create a strong graphic element with, within which undulating and calligraphic supplemental webs weave their way through bands of contrasting color or even seem to quietly slink their way up and around gold lurex tape. As with the case of the first family of pictorial weavings, we find a twill textile sample. We imagine this could have been intended for drapery or upholstery or even possibly a rug. But one last transformation to this particular warp takes place before the family is complete. The black and white warp stripes are removed altogether, leaving only the orange stripes and 16 evenly spaced gaps between them, which in the case of underway, gives space for vibrant red and white supplemental wefts which travel the surface and seemingly, with seemingly no beginning or end. And Sunny <coughs> follows suit, but rather than using voluminous wefts here, Albers opts for short lengths of supplemental wefts and even knots and embroidery floss in blue and green and pale yellow against the golden wefts. But, so why look at Al Albers' weavings this way? There's certainly a way in which this particular method of looking can become analytical and detached, technical, and with a risk of stripping away the aesthetic from the structural. But in fact, I would like to believe that Albers would have appreciated this way of looking, looking closer and closer to the object, knowing not only its appearance, but knowing the whole form. Her weaving calls out to us to be examined. We want to look at their backs, underneath, the inside, we desire to see them laid out in front of us, as if on a loom. We urge to, we, have the, we fight the urge to pick at the stitches and imagine them back in the very beginning of their process. This is the way that Annie Albers looked at textiles. She understood both their structure and appearance because in weaving there is no difference. A weaving is the sum of the orchestration, a construction of its individual threads. Or maybe, as she would say, the event of a thread in a way, it's an exercise in seeing. And perhaps she asks us. Perhaps she asks us to let the threads be articulate again, to find a form for themselves, to no other end than their own orchestration. Thank you.